You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lalita G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. For real? I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Any scene depicted in this episode is a fictionalized dramatization based on true accounts and public records. We aim to give voice to the story and tragedy of Erica Hill's life. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. I remember Erica's being very kind and smart. She was always a sweetheart. When I heard about what happened to her, it broke my heart. How sad and cruel. That poor girl didn't deserve to be treated the way she was treated, and she certainly didn't deserve to die in such a harsh, brutal way. I don't know much about the Hill family, other than seeing them at church, but it was definitely evident to everyone that encountered Marie and those children that something wasn't right with how Marie treated those children especially Erica. Instead of church people turning their heads and ignoring the harm and trauma those kids went through, they could have stepped up and said something to Marie about the way she was treating them. It's just sad to think about. One thing I certainly know about Marie Hill is that she would never allow anyone to get close to her or those children because she didn't want to be exposed. She had always been evil in my book. This week, we have kind of a two-parter in one episode. We're continuing our conversation talking about Marie Hill and her interaction in church and with church people, and then kind of talking about the church on a further level. The first part of the conversation is a conversation I had with someone who was a friend of Marie's, went to church with Marie as well. And so we have a short kind of excerpt from a longer conversation that she and I had that you'll listen into. And then part two is a conversation I had with three pastors here in Madison, Wisconsin. And I want to have a conversation about the Black church in general and its engagement and interaction with Black girls. And so I think this is important because this is conversation is not about one church. It's not about the church that Marie Hill went to, but it's about the Black church as a whole and giving us challenges and how we need to be, you know, in this in this new millennium to really reach out to the young folks to really defend Black girlhood 
You know, church on one hand for us as black people has been a place that has given us solace and has given us uh, a sense of family and community and kind of all the supports in between historically. But church on some hands, people have used the church to hide in it and to, and to hide behind a Christianity that ain't Christian and has caused for some of us, including myself, for the church to not be protective and not defending my black girlhood. And so I talked with my brother, uh, the Reverend Dr. Alexander G. I talked to Pastor Marcus Allen, who is the pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, one of the oldest black churches in Madison, and I think probably the oldest, probably the oldest Black Baptist church in Madison. And then I talked to the Honorable Pastor Everett Mitchell, who is the pastor of Christ the Solid Rock Church. And of course, my brother Alexander is the pastor of Fountain of Life Church, and he is the longest serving pastor in Madison. So this is a great conversation with three pastors that I really respect. I respect their ministry. I, I respect um, them as, as Black men. And also, all three are fathers of Black daughters. So tune into this conversation. would love to hear you know your feedback, your thoughts on the conversation and ways that you think we can help the Black church be safe for girls like Erica Hill and other Black girls who need their girlhoods defended. The story is really on Erica. A friend of mine had mentioned this case, and she said, oh, that might be a really good story for you to do, talking about the fact that the daughter said, I want to stop generational curses. I want to stop this pattern of abuse in my family. And that being why she came out and told about Erica being killed. And that to me was just really moving because I thought, man, that took a lot of courage because many of us, as we're living in our family situations, we don't challenge what is. We stick with family secrets and too often they call generational curses, but really it's not a curse, it's a decision, it's a choice that people are making to live in that same way that their mother lived and their grandmother lived. And once I started learning more about the story, because I did reach out to both of the sisters, to people who knew them, but neither one of them wanted to talk about it. So I just start researching more, researching more. The more I learned about the case, the more I was just taken aback by how many people were around Erica, how many people had suspicious about her being abused, social workers involved, all these things. And I thought, oh my God, a lot of people missed the opportunity to save this girl. And I noticed that so many people talk so much about how wonderful Marie was, that the fact that this child was brutally killed by somebody was missed. Yeah. It was missed. It was. It definitely was because that's the mentality that she had people to believe. And that's why it was so shocking because you, this is to this baby, and you had us thinking that you was just, that's what I was going through my mind. 
when I found out, I was like, you mean tell me you had this cat, uh, you killed this baby, and you had us believing that you was holier than thou, going around talking to people, ministering to people, you know, wow. Mm-hmm. And for, for some people that don't know God, they would have been like, wow, they would have been putting their mouth against God. Right. I said that. When I first found out, I was like, wow. It was kind of like out of anger because it wasn't that she was my idol and I looked up to her. She was just a, a person that knew how to play the role. And all along, she didn't like her own little cousin. And she couldn't even keep the promise of her mother when her mother cared for that baby. And like you said, so many people was under that impression. It was an impression. <laughs> it definitely was an impression. Because it ended up being something different and, and disappoint a lot of people. You feel me? I do, but it seemed like from things that I've read, like people didn't want to change their mind about Marie. They wanted to still believe she was this wonderful, holy, giving person. And so they just erased what happened to Erica. I didn't. I didn't erase what happened to her. I felt terrible that that baby went through that and that she, her life was taken. For some reason, we don't even know what was the reason, what was her motive for doing it or none of that. But that's what I seen in Marie. And what I seen in Erica, she was quiet and shot. Didn't say much or nothing. You could talk to her till you blew in the face and she'll just smile and won't say nothing. And I don't know how that been accounted for, but the whole thing was is that people were going back out uh, how she was or played. She was playing it off and knowing that she had it on her eyes to do something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But to talk about it over again, it just made me shake my head. If I would have known that woman was the way she was and she needed the help she needed because my kids were definitely saying she was crazy. No, girl. Don't talk about people. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what you got out of it, too? People was actually doing that? A lot of people? Yeah, that's what I found, is that a lot of people would say, well, Marie was this great person. There's got to be more to the story. I can't believe this is true. Something else has to be going on. But it wasn't like a he say, she say situation where you don't know who to believe, whose side to take. Erica was dead. How many ways... Can you flip that story that this girl was brutally killed and her body was horribly disposed of, treated like trash? Like how many different ways do you twist that and you still come out with this is a wonderful woman of God? It's confusing to me. But did it make sense how I broke it down to you? It does make sense because... You're basically saying that she really kept people from knowing her. No, this is the answer she pulled when she was around people. And that's all I That's what got me. I was like, she was just acting. She was just acting. She was really just acting and she's not holy. And what I said to you earlier, thank God that my kids noticed that and they didn't stay around her. Because who knows? But she paying her cost for it. And we have to forgive her just like I do. It's just when you, you be in shock to know that this stuff can happen 
uh, somebody was like, she wasn't running around that church for nothing. <laughs> and I was like, what? What does that mean? She was running for the demons instead of running with the spirit. Oh, oh, you said, oh, she wasn't running through that church for nothing. My God. I was like, oh, heck no. Wow. <laughs> but she paying for it. And when he make you accountable for something, and like, he already knew where it was going to go. He already knew how it was going to end the whole night. And he knew exactly what was going to happen to her. And you know that saying, he will get your attention when he's ready. He will get your attention. So however you receive it on the part of what you did in your life is just how you're going to get it. But we have to learn to forgive. Forgiveness is one of the biggest parts of our life that we have to really, really, really pay attention to. A lot of people don't like to do it. A lot of people don't think they have to, but they do. It said it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. It says that. So I don't know how anybody can overlook that. I just had a talk with one of my friends and she was going through some stuff and she uh, relied on his friend because when she told me that the woman said to put on her whole armor and tighten it up, make sure you tighten it up because you're going to have to move some people out of your life. They're going to come at you. Duh, 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 duh. And she went by that. I said, but did she tell you to forgive? She said, I don't have to forgive because I ain't do nothing wrong. I said, but the book of Matthew said you do. That's what God, that's the commandment that he said. And she was like, I don't have to forgive. I repent on. And that just let me know that I need to back up and not even speak on nothing with her about God. She already knows. She wasn't ready. Some... <laughs> she wasn't ready. So let me ask you this. One of the things that I read about in 2004, the school had some suspicions about Erica being abused for a number of years when she was in middle school. And in 2004, one of Erica's teachers approached her because she always wore turtlenecks and long sleeves and long pants, no matter what the weather was. And that was suspicious to them. And then just her demeanor being so quiet. So one day she had this shirt on and there was this, like they said it was a safety pin that she closed up. She looked like she about to choke to keep this collar on covering her neck. And the teacher asked her, Erica, can I see your neck? And finally, after kind of conjoling her, she she showed her her neck and she saw a scratch on her neck. And then she said, can I see, can you open the shirt a little bit more? And she saw more scars on her neck and on her chest. And they called human services that day. Erica goes home and she never went back to school. So in fall of 2004, she was pulled from school. The family eventually, not long after it was reported that Erica was being abused at the school, that the family just moved out of the city and they just ended up closing the case. When they ended up coming back, all the other kids went back to school except Erica. And during the court hearing and some of the court papers, one of the reasons why... Marie said that Erica didn't go back to school because everybody else was back in school. Erica was listed as being homeschooled because Erica refused to go back to school. She was being a behavior problem. And this is why Erica didn't go back to school. 
What do you think about that? Does that sound true to the Erica you knew that she would be like, I'm not going back to school? Nope. And don't now. <laughs> not at all. And like I said, it was so weird because they all sat by each other at church and everybody would wave at them there, wave their hand up a little bit. She let you speak, but you couldn't really tell because she had them so scared, I guess. Now that this happened, you know, wow. But no, I don't believe Erica would have denied that because Erica always was trying to reach out to the people and tell them. And so I think Marie was the one that had her shut down into homeschool. And who knows that she was actually given a homeschool because if she was given a homeschool, wouldn't you think the teacher would have... How was she doing the homeschool? Over, online? Nobody really knows. Exactly. Nobody really knows. And she was out of school up until 2007 in February when she was killed. So she basically was pulled from school after reporting that she was being abused. And nobody really tried to find out was she okay and nothing. Even after the uh, teacher called the social worker, the social worker wasn't able to get reach out to her because she ran with the child. Right. She ran with all her kids. So that meant all of them. But do it even have a report on her hitting her other kids too, or it was just Erica? I'm not really sure about that. I have been told by other people that there have been some reports when the kids were younger that they were being abused even from back when Tierra was a toddler that she reported that she was being abused but I don't know you know because all that stuff is so tied up and you can't get into those records like that so I don't know but I know that Erica had a social worker earlier in 2004 because she had a really bad injury to her finger and when she went to the doctor and they asked her to undress you know how they do to examine you that Marie left. She didn't let her undress. She took her with her. Right. And they assigned a social worker around that time because they were, again, concerned that she was being abused. So twice, it seems like in 2004, that she had a social worker who tried to do some type of a investigation but did not follow it through. I think I remember that now. But what do you remember? I remember, I, I think I remember when she was being accused of abusing one of them kids. I didn't, And like I said, she only would have Erica when, you know, if she was a problem child, it was because it was the Chicago where they were from. And I think Marie was getting her sometime when her mother wasn't able to care for the girl. But she wasn't up here like that. It was every now and then I seen that extra child. And I always thought that was Marie's daughter. Okay. And I didn't find out that she really wasn't her daughter until she died. Wow. Until we found out that she murdered this baby. And my daughter, I tell you herself, that little girl, none of them kids said nothing to nobody in that church. And so does Marie sound like the type of mother that would have been like, if she said, I'm not going to school, she would have been like, fine, I'm going to homeschool you? No, Erica wouldn't talk back like that. And Marie probably just didn't let her go back because the people were getting suspicious. Yeah, that's basically how it sounds because Erica ain't going to talk back to that woman if she hitting her like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Ain't no child going to respond to their mama when they beat them like that. You know Right. No child. So... I'm under the assumption that we made a decision not to send her to school, but the other kids would. 
So maybe Erica was just hard to, you know, wouldn't listen to her, wouldn't do what she said. And the other kids was, you know what I'm saying? And Erica probably was like, you know, my mama and all this and other, you know. And perhaps Marie felt like that was an insult because I've been taking care of you and all this and other, you know what I'm saying? Well, I think... Well, I don't know. I guess I feel like it was more so was Erica being punished because she told and then she couldn't go to school because school people said she loved school. Some girls that I knew who knew her from school that I talked to said she loved school. She loved being in school. She was looking forward to going to high school so that maybe this was you go up there talking to these white people about what's going on in my house. You're not going to school anymore. Basically. Yeah, and then one of the daughters had said that, who reported the abuse, said that there were times when if they had been physically abused really bad and had scars or black eyes or stuff like that that was noticeable, that people could see, that they wouldn't go to school for a while. So they wouldn't go to school with a bruise. Oh, wow. So it really makes me wonder, when she came home after finding out that she had reported her, what her life was like after that. Right. Like I said, she definitely didn't show it, and the kids didn't say nothing. But my kids made it clear that that lady was crazy. And I told them, stop talking about people. Which is interesting to me because, you know, kids will say crazy things. I get that. But I think back to when I was a kid, and there was this neighbor that we had that lived on top of the hill, and he had a little apple tree. And one day, one of my friends, you know how kids are, you're going to go pick an apple, eat it. Well, one of my friends went and picked the apple in his tree. She said that he made her strip and he beat her on her back. And she was just saying, this man is crazy. Like there was this little stuff about him. And then I think about, I had a teacher when I was in middle school. People used to always say this teacher was freaky. He was just make the kids feel weird. I had at least two teachers like that in my middle school. Fast forward to years later, each one of those three different teachers Because the guy who had the apple tree was a teacher, too. Years later, each one of those three teachers was arrested and prosecuted for sexual inappropriate behavior and sexually molesting kids. And I thought back to when we were kids, kids said it. So I just wonder sometimes, do we brush kids off in their feelings and what they're discerning too quickly and not listen enough to what kids are saying about people? Right. And I think that's the thing. And how is it that they was able to keep it so deep inside? I couldn't do it. I would have been told somebody because I don't want to keep it. I don't want it to keep happening. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But when did it get to the point of that whole situation? is a lie okay that's fine because that what i was saying before was really just kind of precursor information for you all so we start all over pastor g what is one word you would use to describe the status of black girls today um undervalued pastor allen um are we talking about uh young adults um or or children under 18 under 18 uh I would say, um, I don't know right now. Okay. Pastor Mitchell? In danger. Mm. Mm. You know, um, 
before starting the conversation with you all this morning, I gave you a little context and background about Erica Hill's story and some words from folks who knew her from a local church and some concerns that they thought at the time and in retrospect are seeing things very illuminated. In 2015, it was discovered that Erica Hill, who had really been missing for 12 years, had been killed and her mother was arrested and charged with her murder. And this is a family who was really involved. And so one of the questions I have for you all is that, you know, these days we see a lot of unchurched children, but Erica was a girl, she and her family went to church basically every Sunday. And not only was there allegations that Erica was abused, but all of the other children in from very young ages. How do you think the church folks missed what was going on at home? And it could be very specific to Erica or just in general. How are we as church folks missing some things that are going on at home with Black girls? Well, I think uh, one of the largest largest and most complicated issue is the ways in which black churches and black communities still view corporal punishment Mm -hmm. because corporal punishment is still seen as a legitimate uh, conversation, a legitimate way to respond to black discipline. uh, Then if just because, you know, people will raise alarms about, you know, children being disciplined doesn't necessarily will, you know, lead, you know, uh, community leaders, especially in churches to then think that they need to intervene. Because for the most part, most uh, most congregations still support the idea of uh, spare the rod, spoil the child, and uh, and because there's really no, if there isn't like a kind of pulpit demand uh, to push the issue of a different model of corporate punishment being applied to children, then I could see how a number of you know church folks would just kind of turn their head and be like, well, what happens in your house is your house. What happens in my house is my business. And I, and I can do to my children, you know, what is what God gives me the right to do. That kind of philosophy, I think, leads to the ways in which many of our churches probably don't uh, intervene in the aggressive ways in which I think we probably should. Uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Pastor Pete. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I want you to follow up. But I also want to ask you, do you think that it's difficult for us? as a people because corporate punishment has been so part, so much a part of our history to make the difference between spanking and abuse or is it all abuse i think there's a differentiation but i i, I think to um to pastor mitchell's point um there's a philosophy about um corporal punishment being um uh, being biblical or being acceptable but i think many of us at least my age i'm mid 50s and older remember being spanked and didn't didn't see it as being beaten because that wasn't the intent and it really wasn't the result. I mean, I can certainly think of a couple of times where mom went overboard, but for the most part, um, it wasn't just because I was loud in the house. I broke a window and I wasn't supposed to throw. There's some things I did to put my life in, in danger. So I think many people will look back and say, well, yeah, my mom whooped that butt too, but I'm, look, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm an author, I'm a judge. I'm a, you know, we, I think we just look at it. It worked for us. And so we look at things through a similar lens. Oh, and I think that's that that if the lens is not that someone was trying to hurt us or destroy us, we assume that that was some that that would be someone else's goal. 
Pastor Allen? Yeah, and I, I would say um, sometimes we just don't know what to look for. Um, honestly, um, and as as these two uh, pastors also have stated, <clears throat> that is, um, we, I got beat in church in front of everybody, <laughs> <laughs> and nobody called the police. And you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, I didn't got whoopings, and I don't. I watched my cousin get a whooping in during a Sunday morning service because he he said something slick to his mama. My mama slapped me in church, and the lady behind me just laughed. Um, and, and, and I'm still mad at that lady, even though she passed away, <laughs> My God. but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I think, I think that's, and what G was saying, and we didn't see it as abuse, uh, mm -hmm. as correcting, uh, inappropriate action. Uh, but no, we don't do the same to our children though. Um, mm -hmm. hands on our children like, like that. And, uh, I think, uh, generationally times have changed and, and the issue, like I said, is just people just really don't know what to look for. Mm -hmm. um, the interactions in church, I think, are not long enough to really define what's really going on uh, unless you have those leaders who are intentional um, of watching and, and looking and talking to them and, and, and getting some understanding of what's going on and also the vulnerability uh, of the person who having uh, the issue, if they're willing to express uh, what's going on and how they're feeling. So I think um, that that was prevents the church from doing more and mm -hmm. uh, not having that intentionality of really trying to figure out uh, what's going on. And I think, and I think what Pastor Allen said was so key is like there has been a generational shift because I've never put my hands on my kids, you know, because of how I was uh, so physically abused, like they they would just beat you because they were angry, beat you because you were vocal, beat you because you weren't silent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized that, you know, as I learned different ways of disciplining, uh, that 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 there are different models that we could have been appropriating that they didn't have access to. But we do. And quite honestly, you know, I when I got a puppy, I realized that I was training my puppy without beating my puppy. Mm -hmm. so, so why then would I then you know, beat my children for non-compliance. That love, it love and consistent love, is probably a greater discipline than my hands or my feet. They can fear me as one, but respect is a, is a greater tool of love than fear. But uh, but that's part of our legacy that we have to continue to you know to deal with at the same time. I've corrected I've corrected people in my sanctuary uh, for hitting children and said we don't do that, mm -hmm. especially, not, especially not during my sermon. We don't do that uh, because right. I don't want my, that child to associate the the violence that just happened to them with the word of God being preached to them. Right. Uh, and when I did that, uh, I mean that was that was a that was a prominent deacon's wife in my church that wow. was, that was going in, and uh, you know they did not appreciate me doing that. But you know they left anyway, so it didn't matter. <laughs> my God, you know, little lady, can I add? Um, I was talking to some gentlemen. My nonprofit works a lot with men who are formerly incarcerated. And one day we were really trying to get at the root cause of some of the fear and some of the issues that, um, or some of the pain they were dealing with. And I remember this one particular discussion, the brothers really went on the fact that they thought that their mothers and their grandmothers didn't love them Ooh. because they would, they would beat them mercilessly mm -hmm. just to find out as an adult that that mother or grandmother was so afraid that the streets were going to get them 
that they did what they thought a father, grandfather wouldn't do. I mean, mm-hmm. what would do had to have been present. And um, but they describe it like extension cords and stuff that was that was mm-hmm. really abused. But then the individual who was receiving it felt unworthy of love. So they weren't very apt to tell anybody. So I think what happened right. is sometimes abuse traps first, traps people so that so that they don't ask for help because they assume that somehow they are unworthy of love or good treatment. I absolutely agree with that. And I think something that Pastor Allen said too about we don't know what to look for. And part of me wonders, I think that's part of it. We don't know what to look for, okay? But the other part of it, I, I wonder sometimes, are we looking? You know, when we're when we're looking at black girls and their experience in the world today. You know, before we started recording, Pastor Mitchell was talking about a young 11-year-old girl who was shot in the head um, locally recently this week. And, you know, I I look at the statistics that are growing with black girls who are committing suicide, the numbers of black girls who become pregnant as teens, sex trafficking of black girls, missing black girls, Black girls are being pushed out of school. A lot is going on with our girls. And, you know, I I often think about the quote about Malcolm X, about the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. And I think if that is true, then we have to look at what about the black girl? If the black woman is disrespected, what about the black girl? And so even with, with Erica in particular, this was back in, say, 2004. So this has been about 16 years ago when Erica was last in school. And I talked to some young girls who went to school with her. And even almost 20 years later, they talk about the raggedy clothes that Erica wore in comparison to her sisters and brother. They talk about Erica's hair being so undone that even in school, sometimes braids were falling out. And I thought, well, okay, so maybe on Sunday, maybe she wore different, maybe she had Sunday to go meet in church, you know, Sunday to go to meet in clothes. But if her hair was raggedy Friday and it was raggedy when she came back to school on Monday, it couldn't have been fixed up on Sunday. So even those things and even some of the folks saying that they saw scarring, not just on Erica, but some of the older children and younger children as well. So part of it is, is if we are looking. And so the follow-up question with that is really, in what ways do you all believe that the Black church has been an unsafe place for Black girls? And it's looking at it emotionally, physically, sexually. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the church just categorically has been an unsafe place for, for Black girls. I think the church has been a place of healing, of education, of support. Of course, we have our issues. So I'm not trying to come out and pretend like we haven't done that. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't just sign on and just say the church has just missed its mark. I think when we come to church, we put on our best clothes, we put on our best attitude, we try to find we try to find God. We're not thinking that that that's that abusive things are going on. Like people who lie think people are always lying to them. People who are still mm-hmm. still think people are stealing from them. I think what happens is a child could come in and go right down to the children's church program. As a pastor, I don't necessarily see. All of those children. And if they're mm-hmm. proud of a very prominent leader, it's not in my mind that stuff is going on. That's why sometimes as adults, we will say or we'll say, you know, what? I knew something was wrong with that situation. I think it was gnawing at us and trying to um, come to the forefront. But when something is just unfathomable, 
Um, I don't think it's just like we're looking at it and just saying, well, as long as they tie, then I'm not going to check them on the kids. That's, I don't think that's the MO for the kind of pastors I know. But I think we have an opportunity to learn how to watch out for certain things that because it's just different. But it was never on our scope. Just like, you know, when children start talking about the abuse that happened in their homes and stuff, a lot of times people are shocked mm-hmm. um, because the, the person puts on such airs that you can never associate that that action um, with the accusation. Well, I, I think I agree with G. Uh... But I also know, like you said, it's so much that happens in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know who's addicted to drugs. Uh, um, I had one of my members, prominent member, serving on uh, in, in the church, but came to me, told me he was addicted to drugs. And I was like, what? You hear every week at Bible study, at Sunday school. And I just I just I just didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, or someone who's dealing with some type of mental illness. Uh, we, we can't, you know, uh, we, I, we, we don't know that if they're in service unless, you know, you can tell some things or you're having some one-on-one conversations. Uh, but I, I, I can only speak for the context that I've been in. Um, and, and I try um, to make sure, you know, our situations are safe where I'm pastoring, where I am at. And, um, and I think people have found that, that hope and that peace when they come to um, the churches that I have pastored and been a part of, mm-hmm. but we know we know there there are monsters everywhere, and we know there are monsters everywhere, and and, and they um, they hide themselves so good. And I, I forget what I think I was talking to you all how the the the, um, the predator gets connected to the family uh, mm-hmm. to be able to have that safe haven. I think that was Pastor Mitchell who said that, and and so it's is is I think, uh, but I do think like uh, Pastor G said, we we have lessons that we should be learning, and we mm-hmm. should be intentional of looking for those things because you know the church is just, um, it's not it's a one stop shop for a lot of people. Uh, we, we're not we're just not focusing on women. We're just not focusing on singles. We're just not focusing on married. We're not just focusing on youth and young adult. Our churches focus on every person that come in. And we have a ministry for every person. And I think it's the responsibility of those small groups. Hopefully individuals are a part of those small groups that can be able to um, distinguish and really be intentional and looking at what that person is dealing with to be able to help them uh, if they're fu- uh, struggling with some type of abuse or something, uh, drug addiction or mental illness or something like that. Yeah. And, and I think my, you know, my perspective is, uh, is just different because you know, the the man who abused my sister, uh, you know, for 12 years, you know, he was a deacon in the church. Mm-hmm. And it was it was not like the pastor didn't know or didn't have information or even the members didn't know that we, since we were very vocal about this stuff, it happened. But, you know, they made a different scenario and changed it to say, you know, you know y'all are breaking up the family or you being, you know, my sister was being fast and mm-hmm. being fast at, you know, nine uh, what did that mean? So, so obviously, I come to this very different. So, I believe that mm-hmm. the, you know, church is not always safe because we don't have we don't use language that will create safety, right? We don't right. use language in our in our the way that we think about things. Like the fact that we still having conversations now in the in the twenty first century about uh, you know whipping children, and I mean, it's just not creating safety. And uh, and the reason why people gravitate to certain churches over other certain churches. Is because you know they they know that certain leaders are not going to talk about what is accepted and what is not, and 
You know, I make it my business to create uh, an uncomfortable environment uh, for people so that they understand very clearly where I stand on certain issues so that uh, there's no confusion about that. Because, you know, Pastor Allen is right. They choose churches for a reason. They choose mm-hmm. uh, they choose the environment because they know there's not going to be a whole bunch of people focusing. And, you know, we're so hungry for talented people. We're so hungry for competent people that we damn near will certify anybody uh, to be in leadership. Uh, now. Mm-hmm. And so I think taking time to create that culture, we have to be very intentional about that uh, because, uh, you know, because we are busy, because we are moving so many different people around. That mm-hmm. it, just, it just requires for us to do that. I still remember that. I think I shared that with you last time. I still remember when these two young girls came to came to me and they were, you know, saying that, you know, I had a good deacon in training. He was, you know, a, a member, foundational member of my church. And he was trying to get them to go prostitute down in Tennessee. My God. And I'm like, what the, you know, and he was doing the, and he was crafting invitations while we were doing the Lord's Supper. So he's back. He's back there, you know, sending texts while we're trying to do the Lord's Supper, trying to get my girls to go trick down in Tennessee. My God. And the congregation didn't stand with me. They they did not stand with me when I tried when I decided to put him out and followed up on prosecuting him. They were like, Pastor, you know, you shouldn't believe these girls. They just fast. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm telling y'all right now, you know, y'all, y'all can vote me out, but I'm never going to stand on the side of a a pedophile over against a victim, especially right. black girls. That just ain't going to happen. And I appreciate, you know, Pastor Mitchell, what you're saying and how you say it and what you've done. Cause I think, and I was really, because again, I'm not outside of the church. I'm in the church. I'm part of the church. And so um, with these questions, I really wanted to push the envelope at the same time, respecting where I live. But I think one of the things that I would love for Black pastors in particular in thinking about defending Black girlhood is to really answer the question. And the question really was, in which ways has the Black church been an unsafe for Black girls? And um, as well as we know, the Black church has been everything for our community over the years and historically to really have pastors wrestle with the question, in which ways has the black church been unsafe? Because there are ways in which the church has been unsafe. You know, I get a lot of conversations with black women who have had, unfortunately, uh, Pastor Mitchell, situations like you described, where someone in the church, including myself, where someone in the church has been the abuser and the girls have not been believed. And so I think Whereas we know that every eye can't be on everybody, there's got to be some level of intentionality around educating ourselves as the church of what are some of the key social issues that are going on within our Black families and being very proactive in addressing those issues. At some point, we have to, with the numbers that are going on with Black girls, you know, there's some numbers that say, 50 to 65 percent of black girls are being sexually abused. And we know of that number, 90 percent of those are being abused by someone they know and love. So at some point as the church, we have to assume that every time we see a black girl, she is half. She has 50 50 chance of already been abused or she's going to be abused. You know, she has a high 
percentage of maybe committing suicide, usually as a result of that abuse. You know, so at some point, how do we get in the um, offensive? Is that the right word? I'm trying to speak sports and I shouldn't. We have to be proactive. Intentional. I like, I like intentional. I okay, like intentional. See, I need to leave sports alone. I don't know nothing about that. At some point, we have to be expressly intentional about being a safe place for Black girls, or we just won't be by default. And I, I agree. I'm sorry. I misunderstood the question. I, I, I heard the question as being, how has the Black church mm-hmm. not been a okay. safe place um, yeah. rather than in other places? And I think... Um, like growing up, and I've been in church my whole life, I haven't had situations like with that, where what, what Pastor Mitchell was saying, where the congregation is standing against the pastor when young ladies mm-hmm. have, have said this. So, I, so I'm scratching my head thinking, people still do that? Um, so I think the silence um, and, and, not, and not advocating for young girls when they, when they tell. And I think the other piece is, and this gets into some of our spiritual lingo, I think a lot of us struggle with moving on our on our discernment. That's just Ooh. a strange biblical word that we kind of hear. But I think that there are things that are trying to come to our attention and we don't know how to process them or they're mm-hmm. so gory. We, we push them to the side. But as, but as like, I remember just being a child thinking there was a certain teacher that everybody liked. I never had them, but everybody liked them, particularly all the cool kids liked them, the, the, the jocks, the, 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 the football stars, the basketball stars. And he and he was a middle school teacher and a high school teacher where it came out in the media that he had been abusing boys in school, having using his adopted son to invite the kids over for sleepovers and then, you know, abusing just, you know, lots and lots and lots of um, young kids, young boys from our community. I always felt there was something different about him. But as a 10, 11 year old, I didn't have any I didn't have a language. I didn't I didn't mm-hmm. have any category to put that in. But then when it came out as an adult, I thought that's what it was. So I think the church has to help people to be vigilant and to say, if you sense something's not right, pray about it or talk about it or ask questions, just give people license. I think there is a lot of stay out of our business, stay in your own business. Um, but I, I think we have to help people to really follow discernment. Because I think as adults, we have found out that people have not been what they portrayed on ch- at church on Sundays. And we've said, ah, that's what I was feeling. Right, right. Um, I think, you know, some of the words that I heard about church folks dealing with Marie is having noticing scarring on her daughters um, being, well, let's just pray for her. Do we have a tendency to spiritualize our non-actions? Definitely. Um, With a lot of stuff. Um, (laughs) Uh, but with this case, um, I, I think that that was um, it was poor on poor choices on those who saw what was going on. Uh, and I think we use this the spiritualized, whereas we say, let's just pray for her to. To be silent, and I think that's what G talking about and not voicing it to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And even if the pastor and I, and I take this serious, we are mandatory reporters. Um, I went to um, when I was <clears throat> pastoring in Virginia, uh, uh, adopted child. You no, know, he didn't want to be in the place, but he said they hit him. And I called uh, his social worker. I talked to the parents and I called the police mm-hmm. uh, b- because <laughs> because he said 
they hit him and and I'll let the police figure it out what happens from there. Um, and so that that that's that's just, that's just my take on it. And because we can't, I can't say oh, I'm gonna pray for you and then that baby go back in the house, right? And continue to uh, be hit and struck and treated um, uh, inappropriately. And and that was the case with this young man. He was he was treated inappropriately. They adopted him. They didn't want him anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they. Uh, and they they wanted to send them back, but because they adopted them, they couldn't send them back. Right. Um, and, and so um, I, I tried my best, you know, uh, to be a mentor to him and continue to visit him when he went to a group home. Continue to visit him when they put it when he went to a, a psychiatric psychiatric uh, facility, um, and he stayed there in, in the group home until he became an adult. Um, well, let me ask you, Pastor Allen, and then all the other pastors as well. You talked about being a mandated reporter. Is is there a struggle for you all as pastors to balance out being that confidential space where people can come and tell you anything and, and any ways that they're struggling and that kind of mandated reporting? Because I think I think some pastors may opt to lean into being that safe place where people can report and under pastor uh, parishioner privilege, you don't necessarily have to say anything. Um, like how do you all weigh that out as well, pastors? Well, well, for me, I, I just follow, you know, suicide, homicide, and abuse, um, sexual, physically. Um, I'm putting it in the hands of the police. That That's just me. Um, mm-hmm. um, that, that's, that's how I do it now. Of course, you know, uh, people, I, I try to make myself and in, in, in put myself in a position where I'm able to be approachable and able to be talked about. And many people have taken advantage of that opportunity to sit in my office and tell me some horrible things that has happened to them. But if their life is in danger, I'm not allowing them to leave my office uh, mm-hmm. without, without reporting it. Or if someone else's life is in danger, uh, I'm going to report it. Right, Pastor G? Um, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things I, I know I've done from the pulpit is I've said, you all, and I, this is along, this is regarding domestic violence. I was talking about that in relationships. I said, if you're in trouble, let me know. Say something. Say something to someone in leadership, but no, we're going to respond. So know that you can't say to me that you're being beaten or abused at home. And I'm speaking to adult women. And uh, if you, you can't tell me not have it just stay right between us. It, it mm-hmm. wants to go someplace else. So I, and I've seen people in youth ministry say, hey, this is a safe place for kids. But if you talk about suicide or hurting someone else, we've got to bring your parents into what to what Pastor Allen was saying. Um, I think the real struggle is trying to rectify or try, trying to um, try and struggling with with what you're hearing someone say to you and just believing that that's a reality, not, not doubting them, but just it's the, it's the antithesis of that person's personality. I'm sure you're going to get into that with Marie, but I think part of it is you're thinking, could this really go on? Could I, could this really be happening? Could this really, could what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking about, you know, be true. So I don't think it's just their actions that are duping us. I think at a very deep level, we want to believe the best about people and not the worst. And I think sometimes that can be harmful. Mm-hmm. Pastor Mitchell. You know, this this is a very hard question. Um, 
because we want to create safe spaces. But in many ways, I think we have to make a choice between being an ultimate place where people can put stuff and being a safe place for our children and our families and the people the people we serve. I I, I had to. And that's, that's just a hard place to be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to be, you know, a place where people feel that they can, you know, unrelease some of the, you know, thoughts and actions. Uh, but they also have to know that uh, I'm going to be trusted to call the authorities if things are in a place that uh, that people are unsafe. And, right. And, you know, it's not, it, it's not that I don't want to be able to listen, but I also want to make sure that we're responding. And I'm not a, I'm not an investigator. I don't have a police force. I think the you know, proper people to allow them to go in and investigate um, and and uncover what needs to be uncovered. And to the degree in which, um, you know, people try to use, I've seen people try to use the cloak of confidentiality to hide their mess mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, say, is this a confidential, you know, conversation, Pastor? And so mm-hmm. even in my, you know, initial conversations, I've said to them, you know, there, there's confidentiality, but then there's also my responsibility to everybody in our congregation and to this community. So, right. What I've, what I've realized, and this is a conversation that, you know, when you, when you asked me to do this, I started thinking about, okay, it's one thing for me to secure my church. It's right. a whole nother thing to make sure that uh, we're not passing pedophiles around our churches. Yes. Come on now. Because we, you know, because I, I noticed and, and uh, I think I tried to do a good job of it when I see behaviors in people and then you expose them and then they be like, well, I ain't going to be at your church no more. So I'm going to go right. to mine. That I started to realize, like, hold on, uh, I can't just let them go to Marcus's church and then not say nothing to Marcus. And right. then, you know, he look at me like, nigga, why you, why you, <laughs> why he done messed around five, you know. <clears throat> Right. That I have to be, I have to be very intentional about the relationships among ourselves because yes. the narrative has been we just let people bounce. Well, you didn't, you weren't over that. Just kind of spiritual lingo. Why? Well, God, you know, somebody plants a seed, somebody waters. God gives an increase. You may have started your season over there, and it might not right. be that they started their season over there. It might be that they abused over there, and now they're right. going over to that other place to open up a new place of abuse. Right. And I think, Pastor Mitchell, that that is a responsibility both ways, because I've seen that in the church where someone was being, you know, um, chastised, rebuked, restored, and they left to go to another church. So I, I also think, particularly if it's a high profile person that has served in ministry, that it's all is, is on your responsibility at the church where they're leaving. But it's also on the church that is receiving this person that we don't get so slap happy about having this new member, this new person that can help help and work in ministry that we also don't ask. I feel like particularly if it's somebody that we know was in another church and in leadership at another church that we need to have an exit interview and an entrance interview and talk to the pastor where they left. I want to weigh in on something. Uh, I'm thinking more about the the, the church's role later. I think a place where the church globally has really failed is um, how we've not moved more women into key prominent and pastoral leadership in churches. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is when people said, our boys, our boys, our boys, we got to save our boys. Mm-hmm. We could think, well, damn, I didn't have a dad. I remember like not knowing how to do this. I remember not knowing how to drive. Yeah, we got to catch the boys. But we as male pastors have not been girls. And so when people start saying, the girls, the girls, the girls, 
we think of our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers, our district missionaries. Um, we look at people that have made it. They've overcome. They've had a sixth grade education and they've you know, built a home and become middle class. We, even as black men, think of black women as strong and as survivors. And I wonder if we have more key women in, in roles, people who could act on what they know. I say, Pastor, watch out for this. Could that change things? And then the other thing is, I think the issue that you're asking about is broader than the church. I think mm-hmm. it's black culture, and I think it mm-hmm. culminates in the church. But mm-hmm. I remember, I remember, um, um, like in this, in this, uh, Lalita is my is my sister. I'm her older brother. But when Lalita came out and wrote a book about her experiences, grown people stopped me. A fellow, like people, I, I say grown, like I wasn't grown. Um, people <laughs> I respect who are older said, because mm. I said. They said, no, I'm, I just, in our community, we don't, we don't, we don't expose our, our, our fathers and our uncles when they do stuff like that. Which said to me, ooh, you know something about this. Who said uh, that? Um, I'll tell you off the air. Um, <laughs> I want names. Yeah. That, and so, but, but that was a strong thing. But the others, then someone else challenged you about the, you know, that, you know, that you would say fuck damn shit in your book and not, and not be appalled by the person who did it and continue to have a very meaningful and amicable relationship with that individual and never check them on, on being an unrepentant, an unapologetic pedophile. People honed in, people honed in on the words that Mm -hmm. were used in the book. And so I think that all builds into this, this, this collusion that, that you're talking about that's 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 really broad and i think the third thing is people will look at folks and say you know what she survived she survived they survived he survived so if you just kind of keep it quiet take it to the lord Mm -hmm. work real hard go to college it's all going to be all right i think what you do that's really unique lalita is not only do you do you point out what's happening generally but you bring it to your own story and you talk very clearly about the struggles about having to get um, um counseling struggling with suicidal thoughts. Like you lay it all out that makes people think, wait, is that what happens when that happens and no one talks about it? So I think a piece that what you're bringing is the conversation that, hey, just because I got ordained and got three majors and I've traveled the world and preached internationally before I was 25, all this stuff didn't mean that it wasn't that it wasn't hellacious. So I think part of what you're doing is helping to to bring the is helping to bring the healing, because I don't think people take it that far out to understand what's really going on. And I think what you're in a position to do is to give a clarion call and say, okay, the society, black community, the broader community and the church, they've not done enough. So I'm telling you, this is what happens when you don't ask questions. This right. is what happens when you don't challenge your leaders. And this is what happens when you don't train your leaders. And if you're putting people over kids, women, anybody, and you're not having this talk, pastor, you are then part of the problem. I feel that your voice is really helpful in doing that because really for a lot of people, we just assume black women are the strongest people on the planet. And right. so we think of young girls as miniature women. And that's part of your issue too, the adulteration of exactly. young girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with, uh, with Pastor G. And I just think the, the bigger, uh, you know, pulling women up and, you know, and elevating black women's voices and levels of power and leadership is what is still necessary at a high degree. Yeah, I, I think, I think that is really key. But at the same time, if the men don't set the tone, 
for these conversations, for these parameters, for these understandings, what's going to happen is just putting women in leadership positions isn't going to change anything. Because if we're in a leadership position, but feel like we have to play ball, then we're not going to push the envelopes too. So we really need the positions and leadership so that we can bring our sensibilities and our experiences, but we still need the brothers to help to open up the gateway so that when we are in these positions, we don't feel like we're going to lose them if we start talking about domestic abuse, sexual abuse, you know, these issues. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think when I say leadership, I mean leadership. I think Mm -hmm. we're talking about what you're talking about. We're not talking Mm -hmm. about window covering. We're talking about leadership. No, I don't even mean window covering. I mean, even putting women in leadership positions. It's just like, the, the converse of this is when that black person, first black person in a company gets that managing position. Sometimes you're so afraid to rock the boat, you're not going to call out when one of the managers uses the N word or has some microaggressions because you're afraid to lose your position. So I'm saying even when women are in leadership in the church, if they also haven't gotten clear response, clear power and reach and from the pastors talking about these issues and affirming these issues from the pulpit is still going to be difficult for them to be forward in them. I agree. I, I mean, but that's the, that's the responsibility. It's a two pronged responsibility is one mm-hmm. that I, you know, I use my position to, to make sure that I'm affirming leadership and setting a stage of language and culture mm-hmm. But a part of setting stage language and culture is also recognizing that I'm not an expert on things that I don't know. And so I then need to be able to say that I'm going to step. You know, I think, you know, mm-hmm. Joe, Joe Biden did something I thought was special yesterday and uh, when he said, I have Kamala's back. Right. And so he's saying that even though I'm president and I will be president, that even though she's my vice, I got her back. I'm standing mm-hmm. behind her and I will support her. That's the that's the role that we have to make sure that in our heterosexual normative behavior that we don't stand on patriarchy and be like, well, I'm setting the tone. Well, actually, no, right. what I'm doing is ensuring that men and to some degree women who are in this culture space mm-hmm. begin to understand that my intention is for me to step back and support leadership that is, you know, gonna be look may look a little different, may sound a little different. But they have my support in that in that space, and it take, that takes courage mm-hmm. uh, for 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 leadership to do that. But I think, given where we are in our culture, it's it's beyond it's beyond time for us to do that, right? Because I just know even some of the stories that I've heard about black girls talking about being abused within the family, within the church, within their community, that unfortunately, oftentimes. Black women, and I talk about this, that Black women really are the gatekeepers to Black women healing. Because oftentimes when we haven't healed, you know, we don't make way for someone who is screaming for their healing, you know, and making sure that, you know, we're in positions, but also that we're healed and we're given the power to to do these things. So one question I have, too, is like for Black pastors, you know, historically, you all have been everything. You, you've been the pastor. You've been the daddy that wasn't there. You've been the counselor. You've been the, the financer of people getting their house or their car. You've helped people find jobs. The husband. So, the husband. The hu- okay. okay. Um, 
the pseudo, well, hopefully the just the pseudo husband, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But some pastors have gone all the way and they have a earthly duty, you know what I'm saying? Just understand, just understand, there's many right. dimensions to that. Right. So how do we both as parishioners and as you all as pastors balance out because Pastor Mitchell, you said earlier, like you recognize where your expertise is not and you lift people up in that way. How do we balance out in pastors that we train parishioners not to look to pastors for everything? And we also as pastors train each other, train ourselves not to try to be everything so that when somebody talks about you know, their husband slapped them across the face or a child is talking about abuse. You all don't try to fix that thing, but you kind of get them in the right places. Right. Uh, I think we have to be intentional uh, with that. Uh, like you said, in the black church, uh, the pastor is looked at for everything. Um, and, and I'm realizing that now that I'm too accessible to too many people. Uh, mm-hmm. mm, amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. They got your cell phone number. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> too accessible to too many people, and and we we and you know being the person that I am and seeing the old model of the pastor, watching that model that the pastor is there for everything, and it's mm-hmm. times now where we can um I think like um Mitch was saying we need to hire to our weakness, uh what we're not good at we need to make sure we have somebody else in place to be able to handle that, but you also got to teach your people. Um, they think that you're supposed to be doing everything. And if you're not teaching them that um, you're not supposed to do everything, they have to look at you to do everything. A young lady came to my office. I was struggling with life. Um, and I knew what she was telling me was beyond me. So I called a professional to come and talk to her. And she stopped coming to church. Mm. No, she was female. She going through female stuff. Uh, she going through some mental health things. I called a, a licensed professional female that mm-hmm. I would be better suited to help her. Now I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to continue to stay connected with you. But this person I'm connecting you with now can help you with everything you told me about. But she thought I was just pushing her off and pushing her away. And I didn't want to help her. But I want to give her the best care that she was able to get uh, because, you know, um, my time, you know, I, I got what five, six hundred other people <laughs> that 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 needs me. Also, where I have you, give you this person that probably only have ten other people that's dependent on them. Um, so let me ask you this, Pastor Allen, and to all the pastors: Should pastors be having one-on-one meetings with young women, young women, women? Period. Well, I do, but I have a camera in my office also. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and I keep my door open, or if it, and I ask them if it's sensitive, do they want me to close? And I make sure they say, but I let them know. Um, when I first came to Mount Zion, I said, Yo, put me a camera right there because we got cameras all around the church. I said, Make sure y'all put one in my office, uh, so people can see what's going on in my office. Uh, but but you know, things happen, you know, uh, mm-hmm. someone comes to the church in the middle of the day, uh, is you and your secretary there. Or they might be on a mission, you there, and they come with an issue. You can't say, no, I'm not meeting with you because uh, another female is not here with me. That's just that's just my take. Uh, so, you know, you know, you put safety precaution in. You let them know I'm going to keep the door open. Um, I got a camera in the office. And if anything was to happen, uh, you feel anytime uncomfortable, uh, just get up and leave. Yeah, I don't I don't uh, I don't do that 
Uh, I try to have a trusted person that can that I've trained to be confidential and to keep confidential conversations with me uh, when when there's an issue with uh, that people want to have those confidential conversations with me. And it's not so much like I'm always afraid that like you know we're gonna get into you know something gonna be a lit. It is just the perception of the mm-hmm. moment, right? You're in a vulnerable situation, sharing vulnerable information, and people can you know. They, they can translate that to mean a whole lot of different things. So mm-hmm. it's, it's important to have, you know, somebody there to offset that perspective to make sure that, you know, even in my conversations that I don't lend itself to being, you know, uh, you know, creating that too sensitive of a space. Right. Uh, right. Because you can do that. And it's not you ain't being a bad person. You just, you know, your heart is calling out your you, 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 when you hear stuff. Uh, so. I've had to do that only because I I am professionally nervous about, you know, being, you know, people walking away with the impression that they have something that I didn't mean to give them. Right. Uh, and so it just helps to have that. And it just, you know, ultimately it protects uh, it protects me and the congregation so that it, there's nothing that could ever be alleged. And, you know, as long as I've been pastoring, knock on wood, you know, there hasn't been no issues that have come mm-hmm. to the forefront in this in this community because you know if they would they'd love to put it out there. You know they would. <laughs> so, but Pastor Mitchell, I think that also protects vulnerable women, right? Because when you're in that broken state of mind and place, you know you're looking for a lifesaver, and anybody who shows you anything opposite of what you've become accustomed to, you sometimes just grab onto it to save your life. And it, I think it, it, it's a buffer. Pastor G, you were going to say something. No, 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 I just, um, I think I just, I'll win. I, 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 I line up with, with Pastor Mitchell. You want, it, it's not that anything happens, but it's, it's, if someone alleges something, that's what puts you in a very vulnerable position it puts you on in the defense but the other thing is i have to ask myself what's wrong with the sister who can't talk to another sister because if it's an issue i want to talk to the pastor well then i've got women who are pastors well you're up front i want to talk to you what that is just because i can preach doesn't mean that i can help you with those those kinds of issues so for me it's 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 a safety issue it's a it's a it's a monitoring issue there's also an issue of leadership development if you're promoting folks from up front mm-hmm. saying hey here are some of the sisters on my staff they are ordained they are trained they are case managers, social workers, lots of lived experience and training the word. You can talk with them. I know at the church, new people will come to church. There'll be a sister. I won't know. And she'll say, can I talk to you? I have brothers stand right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had one woman like that challenged one of my brothers, like, would you step back? I need to talk to him privately. I said, well, hold on, hold on. You don't know me. You don't know him. You don't come in my church telling me how to, how to conduct my business. I have trained him and asked him, to be, mm-hmm. she turned and left. That was a that was a great blessing because if you that if you that bent on giving me a word mm-hmm. and you going to totally ignore the systems I have, then you don't have a word. You need to go someplace and listen to one. And so mm-hmm. my, my thing is just protecting me and them, developing leaders so that it doesn't all fall on you. Gives me a chance to be to have a more broader perspective of ministry, but bringing mm-hmm. other people up. But there are a lot of broken folks, right? Um, in the world, and sometimes in conversation where they feel comfortable. They would divulge things that can make you feel really uncomfortable and wish, I wish you didn't tell me that detail of your marriage, of your experiences, because now you think we can go, we can go there. And I don't mean sexually or physically, but we can talk about that. And I don't be confident, confident on that kind of stuff. Right. Because, you know, one thing that I don't talk about 
much when I talk about my story. I often talk about the fact that my stepfather sexually abused me. I don't talk about the fact that two deacons in my church abused me. Mm. And and that came from, you know, mm. it really it came from my mother who gave them access to me. You know, um, and I can remember one of the deacons, you know, being allowed to go with him one on one in his car, taking me places. And, you know, the other deacon, you know, just being around, being trusted, you know, and, and given that that access. And I think, um, you know, this balancing, balancing out who you think a person is, is one thing. But when you have certain protocols and certain policies in place, then who a person is or isn't doesn't even matter because the best you can do with the policies and protocols creates that safe environment where it's near about impossible for those lines to be crossed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just think what you said is a, a key, a key indicator is we believe in God make it everybody special, right? In God's right. kingdom, everybody is special and unique. Uh, but also, that also means that everybody, you know, all, we say in, all the time in our churches, all have sinned mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. short of the glory of God. If if that is the case, that means everybody is capable of doing the most inhumane thing we could ever think about. Not to say people will, right? but you have to leave open the possibility that even people that pastors can be groomed too. And right. when, when, you know, when I, I think I shared with you when I told y'all before, you know, the, the most charismatic man I'd ever met, uh, I thought, man, we could be sitting down and having conversations was a youth pastor that I met when I was doing groups at Sand Ridge. And I was going up to Sand Ridge to these chapter 980 civilly committed offenders. And this youth pastor had molested thousands of children, okay. uh, because he, I mean, he could get in. And so grooming us is important, too. Yes, please just expand on that a little bit. You said even pastors can be groomed. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, there there are there are pieces of the pastor leadership that that in the Midwest, you know, we're hungry for competency. Right. You're hungry for people who can be there on time, be consistent, you know, give some dedicated services, have some talent and some administrative things that they can you know bring to us. And I think when you're hungry in a space like this for that kind of leadership and that kind of competency, that at times, you know, people can come in and, you know, share great energy, great enthusiasm, you know, show show some knowledge. And, you know, because you're not used to that, you can be like, all right, man, I finally got somebody in here that can do that. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you know, they they grooming you you, at the house, you're talking, conversation, texting, all of these different pieces. And they have an aspect of your life that before you know it. You have already been pulled into a world that you didn't even realize that you've been pulled into. And I I have had to be very thoughtful because of these experiences around these other individuals that I don't want to be groomed by men or women. And so I'm very, I'm very hands, I'm very hands off when people kind of like Pastor G said, you know, people come up and they like, hey, I, I got this experience. I should be doing this. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, come to Bible study for a year and then I'll talk to you after a year. My God. You're like, what? I'm going to be active right now. That's being active. Come to church every Sunday, come to Bible study for a year, and then I'll talk to you. Yeah. 
pay them tithes, pay, you know, pay, you know, contribute the way that you can contribute to the general life of the you know energy of the church. And then we have a conversation. But but because but that took a lot of maturing in my pastoral mm-hmm. role, because when I first started, man, I was putting up anybody who could. You know, right. Anybody I could. I'm, you know, putting them up because I needed something. And then after a while, I started to realize that putting I've been groomed. So now I've put people who groom me in positions of power where they were now able to abuse people. And while we, right. didn't, while we didn't have sexual abuse in our congregation, I had a whole bunch of people who were verbal abusers, who were email, I call them email abusers. My God. Sending mad, crazy emails. Uh, they were, you know, using their positions to, you know, di- dismiss and demean people because they could not pray or sing or dance, right? Just just the whole manner, mannerisms in which they communicate to people. I realized that I was, I was at fault for putting them in position because I was groomed by my inexperience and my willingness to just not be firm about this. So I had to accept the fact that now I'd rather do less ministry than painful ministry. And so my God. So yes. yes. And yes. so if that's I only, if, word. I, if mm-hmm. I only got if I only got four active ministries, then that's the only the four active ministries I have to offer right now because those are the only people I only have four people that I can trust that are going to do it the right way until we can get some more folks. Because if you don't, if you don't, you create ministry for somebody else. Okay. You gotta, you know, I love I, that. I, I, say, I went to, I'm sorry. Got to throw oh, no. out. I remember once um, I had a person who was a part of our church and um, always kind of struggled, but they were constantly there. And one day on the news, um, their face flashed on the screen that they had found child pornography on their computer. And nobody saw that coming. So that was a situation where just and they didn't work in children's ministry or anything. Well, I oh, you did. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that. I didn't see that coming. I didn't know he had pornography on his computer, but I knew he was a freak. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. And so a super freak. <laughs> and um. And so we sat down and we talked with him. Super. You can't. You can't be here. We're meeting at the boys and girls club. We got rules. There's children here. There's so many. So many different things. Um, he. You know. He talked about how he didn't think he could talk to anybody. It was really. You know. It was, you know. But people stopped coming to our church because they felt like we kicked him out. Mm-hmm. People. Now it would have been a different thing if he had did if they found out that some of the pornography was their their child. But here's the thing, and I think that this is what we're we're hopefully rectifying because because. We are, we are strengthening our camaraderie as fellow pastors. I went to a musical and he was up as one of the one of the headliners. I, I'm exaggerating by saying headliners, but he was introduced as we know this brother's had it rough and he's been in places where he was shunned. And I realized oh in a minute, I thought they're talking about life. I was like, yeah, they were talking about you. They're talking, about, you. they're talking about me. And then he dropped some verse and the place just went bazoic. And just love, and I walked out of there thinking, you know what? I think we'll start doing ministry in the vacuum. I mean, now by having new leadership in our in our black in our black pastors association, like with with Dr. Allen, I'm building rapport so that I feel like we've got, you know, we got a rapport with leaders. But at that point, I just said, you know, mm, I think I'm just gonna kind of just do my because I'm not gonna be demonized for protecting kids. Y'all all right. saw him on television. He's been invested by the FBI. I'm trying to protect you all's children. And I'm I'm counseling adults who weren't protected. And so y'all gonna introduce him as somebody that's been abused by the church. 
See, now that's part of the problem, but that's a whole nother conversation that I won't dip too much in where <laughs> I have noticed in the church, I've noticed in the family that pedophiles are protected and victims are criminalized, but I want to just that's, dip a, sermon. That. that's a sermon. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's my life. But I think <laughs> one thing, one thing that, um, that pastor Mitchell that you said was about that grooming. And I think any pastor that's listening to this conversation, I think is very important to hone in on that because that's one of the things about Marie Hill is that even to this day, you know, People, I looked at some of the court transcripts and the folks, the church folks who came out and gave character uh, witness statements for Marie while she was on trial for the murder of Erica, saying how wonderful she was and all the things that she did and all this and all that, you know. And I'm thinking, there's a whole black girl that's dead. And it's not like she was dead and didn't nobody know how she did how she died her death was intentional and it was violent it was a violent death she didn't do it to herself and so but even in the midst of that people refuse even to this day to let go of the image of who they thought marie was because she could come in and set the church on fire with her testimony she was out serving she was out feeding folks you know at the same time when Erica was found, she was found in a state of starvation. And so even to this day, you know, even her friend that I spoke to, who says she believes that Marie killed her, killed Erica, still her word to me was, well, I just want to make sure that in, in you doing this story that we keep the focus on talking about Erica because, you know, Marie has been through enough. Yeah. You know, so I think that part about grooming and being, you know, imp- too impressed with people and too impressed by their accolades and their criteria that they bring and all the things that they bring and who they served. And I've been in TJ, TD Jake's ministry, you know, all that. I'm just not impressed by people anymore. And I, I love the idea of watching folks and getting to know folks and seeing how they serve. Cause Pastor G, I know recently someone was saying to you, um, wanted to talk to you about serving and in the midst of that, there was something that needed to be done for the church that you gave them an opportunity to do, but they wanted to talk to you instead, you know? Right. So a servant is as a servant does, you know what I'm saying? So I, I appreciate your time. This is one thing I think I want to wrap up with and would love to have a, a longer conversation with you pastors again. But one of the questions I have, because in telling Erica's story, I'm looking at the bigger piece of the 65,000 reported missing black girls and women. And we're really looking at that huge issue through the lens of Erica Hill, who was missing for 12 years, police never called. Um, What is an opportunity for the church in this time and season to minister around this particular issue of missing black girls and women? I would say that uh, that one, we start talking about two things. Pastor Allen has been wonderful in 
giving permission, and Pastor G has been doing this as well, is you know bringing conversations into the forefront that we haven't had before. And I think one conversation we need to be talking about is trafficking. Uh, and I think I don't I don't think our congregations have had a good a good grasp on what trafficking looks like and that process of trafficking because our girls disappear because they get put into the trafficking pipeline and then they just go. Right. Uh, and then secondly, you know, just like we put billboards of, of other stuff in our churches, I think we should be putting billboards of missing black children up on our billboards at our churches uh, as a reminder to the congregation mm-hmm. that as you talk about your Jesus and your religion and getting to heaven, that we have an earth of responsibility to love those who are right in front of us at the same time. Amen. Pastor Allen. Yeah, I, I agree um, with the trafficking thing. And last month when we was doing mental health and I preached from Dana in Genesis 34 and, and looking at the statistics of how black women are more likely to be sexually harassed and also saw and rape and, 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 and one for every one that's reported 15 is not reported you know it's just in the numbers like it's crazy but one thing also i brought to the church attention that uh 40 percent of trafficking are black women um and and so it's uh i think it's bringing a conversation bringing the awareness to our congregation speaking about it and and it just um not letting it be a one-time thing uh, let it be something that's continual um, and de- developing ministry for it um, because we probably have women in our churches um, that have been trafficked or have been missing and then came came forward. And so I think we just got to be intentional a lot of things. And like I said, you know, the church is so various things. So, you know, there's so many issues that we have to deal with and look at, but we definitely got to be intentional, especially, you know, all of our churches, majority of them are women. That's right. That's right. Pastor G, I'm going to let you have the last word. Well, I, I, well, I'll say I agree with the things that folks are saying, but I, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm your brother a little later, but I'm saying this because you're a fellow clergy member. I think we're realize, sitting here realizing how important your voice is because you're pushing us on things that really we hadn't, we hadn't thought about. Right. Like, like how we back women up who are calling out things and saying this stuff's not right. So I think there needs to be awareness and i don't mean that in a very light sense like if you had asked me how many black women i thought were missing in america i would say 350 mm. and so when you told me 65,000 that stung me i'm like, we're all all the men on here are dads of, of daughters right. think 65 how can we not hear this because if one or two or three white women go missing we hear about it even if it's in rhode island we hear right. about it how could 65,000 there are only five cities in madison in Wisconsin that have larger populations than 65. Wow. Only five, after you get to Racine, Kenosha, Madison, Milwaukee, maybe Janesville, everything else is smaller than that. So we're talking about a whole community in Wisconsin disappearing. So I think, and I think there's, I know there's different leadership in, in our African-American council of churches, but I think that there's a role to create the conversation that we're not having, to also preach the healing that we're not talking about, that you model to empower women and people to tell their stories. And then we gotta refer people to counseling. We just can't have people um, sitting on that. Um, so I just I just think we got we really have some more work, some more work to do. 
And um, but I hope that in addition to what you're doing with the podcast and other things in the community, we've got to really find out how do we bring our churches together. I think Pastor Mitch and I were talking about this. I think this is just larger than just one church having a revival on this and another. We got to come together and look at this. We got some stuff we got to repent of. How do we create that space? You know, as I'm talking, I'm reflecting on young girls in our church who have told me about things that have happened, not inside the church, but by pastors and uncles and folks. Um, but as 13 and 14 year old people, they were very trusted and they, and people knew they had talked to many of them had talked to you had talked to their parents, but I thought, wow, in a church, some of these young folks believed that they had the space to say something that was going on and it would never be used against them or divulged. Some of those have grown up to work with me in ministry and people who I really call my spiritual, my spiritual daughters. But looking back, I'm not, I hadn't realized how brave it was of them mm-hmm. to, to, to talk about um, some of those things. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I just, I'm, I'm sitting here dumbfounded because so much is going on in our world. We have built our churches on the strength of black women. And the last thing I say to lady, you, you know, the, not to let me out of last word, cause I'm, it runs in our family. But I just think about the trauma of black women. The night our grandmother got saved, um, she went to church to get prayer for healing for tuberculosis. She had a knife and ice pick and a 45 in her, in her purse because she didn't want the white sharecroppers hurting her children. In fact, she told one white guy who kicked her son, who was about eight, I will see you in hell before you put your foot on my child again. But she stayed married to the man who sexually abused our mother. Mm-hmm. So she would kill somebody if it happened outside the house. But inside the house, that's a whole yeah. other level of trauma that I'm, that's messing but, me up right now. But we're talking about, though, another difference is her son and her daughter. Shit. I'm not even ready to go there. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, I think that could be a whole other part, too. But, but yeah, so son and daughter treatment. Mm-hmm. But also in house and out of house, because I believe mm-hmm. that if that guy had done, I don't think she would have just said okay. But because she carried that knife and ice pick and stuff for someone, but when when it was your child and someone who validated you because you'd never been married, and I just there's so much that's going on, and why don't we understand? Why don't we understand this about black women, and why are we giving them space to say this? And this is not new. This stuff right. still going on, and we challenge them, and we should, but like. Where do they, you know, kind of like Tamar said, where do I take my shame? Where do those women take that shame? Where do they go and talk and process it without fear that they're going to be abused? And so I just think another part of this is just the fact that we have a category of outside terror, but then it's a different category when it's inside terror. Right. And unfortunately, the answer to that question for most Black women, the hundreds and thousands of Black women I've spoken to, it isn't church. That's not where they take their shame. Sure. And we have to change that. Yeah. Well, for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons. Yes. Well, pastors, I thank you, Pastor G, Pastor Allen, Pastor Mitchell. I thank you so much for not just this conversation, but for the progressive way and the unapologetic way that you are loving the people of God and bringing forth in many different ways the conversations that need to be had, the conversations that couldn't have been had 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. So I appreciate you all and and bless your ministries and and thank you for being brothers that are, you know, out there doing what you do. I appreciate you so much and thank you for taking the time with me this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. God bless you. As my grandmother would say, 
Mm-mm-mm. That was a good conversation. And listen, we're not playing. We mean this thing. We mean to defend black girlhood by taking on the tough conversations that need to be had in order to do so. And we would love for you to get more connected with our work and our mission by visiting Laleda.org to explore the dynamic work we're doing to defend black girls everywhere they are. And while you're there, we invite you to join our mailing list so you will not miss one single fearless conversation.